Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Um, if you have not signed up for the Exiles in Babylon conference for 2023, then I would encourage you to do so on at theologyintheraw.com. All the info for that conference is there. You can attend live here in Boise or attend uh, online virtually. If you do want to attend live, you want to sign up sooner than later because we sold out last year and we will probably probably sell out this year as well. My guest today is Aaron Keys. If you're an avid listener to the podcast, you might remember my episode with Aaron a bit over a year ago where we talked about worship, worship culture, a theology of worship, talked about the church, Loved, loved, loved my conversation with Aaron. He's one of my most respected worship leaders and worship gurus in the church, primarily because he's so incredibly thoughtful and honest. He has spent uh, a couple decades as a worship leader for uh, a few churches, has been, I mean, he's a singer, songwriter, musician, and he has, over the last several years, ran a worship school, which he's going to talk about on the podcast. And he has a huge heart for raising up future worship leaders who are not just good musicians, who are not just good performers, but who are good men and women of God who love Jesus and have a heart for discipleship and are theologically sound. So um, if I know anything about my audience that listens to this podcast, pretty sure most of you are really going to resonate with uh, at least much, if not all of what Aaron has to say about a theology of worship. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Aaron Keys. I wanted you to talk about for as long as you want, just your <laughs> theology of, of worship maybe integrated with your experience. And I definitely want to talk about, or have you talk about as much as you want, uh, 10,000 fathers and the d- various ministry spaces that you're working in. Sure. Okay. Uh, bro, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love this podcast. Um, have looked up to you and the, the, what, you know, the co- contribution you bring, um, in the kingdom of so many different areas, sectors, just thinking, can we do this better? I feel like you've got a real grace for that. Like, how do we do this better? Um, and that's what I've been trying to do for 25 years in the worship space. So about 15 years ago, I started getting hit up by more and more pastors saying, um, hey, do you know anyone who could come be our worship leader? Um, because we've got good singers and musicians, but we don't have anyone that can like pastor us and shepherd us and make disciples. And so, um, you know, that was over the the course of several years of traveling with a band, leading worship, different conferences, stuff like that. And so the more pastors that I started hearing from, the more burden I started feeling of, we got to do something about this. Um, and it's not like, especially 15 years ago, there weren't seminaries training worship leaders. It's not a very like, you know, critical um, community as far as like really doing deep study and <laughs> rigorous theology. It's It was all pretty, you know, nascent and malleable and, sentimental and a lot of beautiful things, but also a lot of like not very critical things, not not very thoughtful things. And so we basically bought a house. God did a couple really cool miracles, man. Like he provided a house where we could build out a basement in Atlanta and guys could just come live with us indefinitely, live with us for six months, live with us for a year. And we could do discipleship the only way that we'd ever really seen it, which was come live with me, come follow me, you know, <laughs> not mentorship. I had done mentorship before with younger worship leaders, like, let's meet and we'll talk about this book. (laughs) But it's like internship, mentorship is so far away from discipleship, where mentorships can meet with me, discipleships can follow me. And so it just felt like we needed to invite people into our lives. um, And to do that, it needed to be like in our home. So God provided a home. And then I was still traveling a good bit with the band. And so God provided a bus. So we had this, we had Leanne Rhymes old tour bus <laughs> for 10 years. It smelled like somebody had been murdered in that thing. It was rank. Anyway, we won't get into that. Um, so it was, God like kickstarted this, this ministry. And it was just, we just called it worship school for the first couple of years. We just had four guys come live with us, you know, six months at a time, um, 12 months at a time. And, and then over the years, more and more people started reaching out saying, Hey, I'm a worship leader, but I've never been trained can I come live with you? And I was like, well, aren't you married with five kids? They're like, yeah. <laughs> Can I come live with you? I'm like, no, no, you can't. We need to, we need to rethink this. So we spent some time uh, tweaking the model, moving from residential discipleship to more um, cohort-based mm-hmm. intensives, 
So that's still what we're doing now. So for about the last 12 years, worship school has looked a lot more like come for a week and then do weekly coaching online, come back for a week, weekly coaching, come for a week. So 18 months um, of training where we basically spend six months diving deep into the character that needs to be there for a worship pastor, then six months on the competency that needs to be there. And then lastly, like the the calling to make disciples and how to build community where you are. So it's the it's kind of the, the best of the best content I wish someone would have given me. Yeah. Um, you know, not only like when I was just getting started and not only in terms of songwriting and set planning, but in terms of like marriage and family and friendships and like living an actual life of worship instead of just singing songs about it. And so um, because the worship space has been historically, uh, you know, from its beginning in about the late 60s, even to now, historically it's been, well, it's very young and it's been driven by a lot of young people. You know, when you're in your 20s, it's just kind of, it feels good just to like get into a groove. It's kind of like drum circles, you know, you just kind of get into it and you just flow <laughs> for a little while and you go into whatever like trance you want to get into. And some of that is great and beautiful and whatever. Yeah. But in your 40, I have kids at college. It's just different now. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not thinking like that anymore. And a mentor of mine told me once, like, once your kids get into late teenage years, that's the hardest stage of your faith. Because all the naivety and all of the simplistic answers, all of that stuff that worked, no longer works. Yeah. Um, once they've come back from taking a few philosophy classes or religion classes or once a, a maniacal authoritarian, authoritarian dictator in Russia starts launching missiles into shopping malls, mm-hmm. all the easy answers and the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of stuff just doesn't really work anymore. It, it feels like out of tune. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a serious discord between my reality and what we're singing about in this ministry. And so as time has gone on, I've gotten older um, did seminary. It just, it just got more and more apparent to us that we've got to take worship more thoughtfully. Mm. Um, and we've got to be more serious and we need to be more studious and we need to be more scriptural because in the Psalms, they, the Psalms just don't screen out like any human experience, mm-hmm. but then in our worship services, we screen out everything that's not just very positivistic, triumphalistic. Everything is always, God's so good. This is also great. Everything's up and to the right. When everyone in my church is struggling through a pandemic or hmm. struggling with Supreme Court decisions or struggling with uh, national um, hostility and volatility and political, like it has been a complicated couple of years, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know because all of our senior pastors, most of our senior pastors have They've been through divinity school. They, a lot of them have postdoctorate degrees. They've, they've wrestled with ecclesiology and church history, and they're not looking at what's coming into our churches as unprecedented. They're like, oh, no, it's way worse than the Dark Ages. You know, like they have a different perspective because they've been trained. The worship pastors have not. Mm-hmm. So the worship pastors are just kind of following culture, going down the stream of whatever's popular. And there's a lot of good stuff in that stream, but not all of it. It's really fitting for this moment, you know, actually less and less of it seems to be just because um, it's hard to fit lament into a worship service. If you kind of want everyone to have good vibes and leave mm. wanting to come back next week, no one wants to come to church and cry their eyes out, you know, <laughs> about the brokenness of the world. <laughs> I've often thought about that. Like you mentioned, I mean, several things you've mentioned. I'm like, yeah, I've, I have felt that. I haven't seen a lot of people say that, that. You know, if if I'm in a more middle class, more primarily white kind of suburban church, that that triumphal God is good, I love you with all my heart, kind of like everything just so positive. And I, I just wonder how much of that is shaped by our position of privilege, you know. And then when I am in churches that aren't in positions of privilege, you know, or especially if you travel overseas and they're in a per- more persecuted country, just worship feels very different all the way from the content mm-hmm. of the lyrics to the posture, to the desperation, to, to the theme of lament that seems to be much more, I feel bad. I feel bad even saying this because it sounds, but you kind of mentioned like, like 
just overemphasis on how good God is. And like you, you, you feed the hungry, you take care of things, you rescue us, you, those are scriptural themes, but they're not the only scriptural mm-hmm. themes. And I just, I just always think of like, you know, statistically 20 to 25% of people singing in church have been sexually abused by a close relative or a trustworthy mm-hmm. person. And most of them have not really dealt with that. You have people that wrestle with various disabilities. Some can be pretty debilitating. You have people that have been mm-hmm. through um, physical abuse or neglect or emotional abuse. You have, I mean, if you add up the deep, deep pain, many times undealt with, that's a pretty high percentage in in the church. And every just smiley, God is so good. I'm like, I, he is good. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel that all the time. If God, or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was with somebody... I won't say because they they listen to the podcast and and I, I don't want to even you know well they're they're known they're pretty public with their story but so one of my friends lost a you know um, a child at a very young mm. age very young age um, and it was mm. a really just brutal process and I'm like you know I've got four kids I think you have four kids too right Aaron uh, I do yeah I just mm-hmm. I can't can you imagine losing like picture one of your kids and losing them at six seven eight I, I, just I think that would be so severe to my faith. Um, I think it'd be really hard for me to sing God is good over and over and over, even though deep down, if I'm still a Christian, of course I believe it with my head, but I think I would struggle every day to say, to Mm. say that. And I think it would actually be hard for me in a context where everybody's just smiling so big and God, yes, God is so good. Yes. Yes. And I, I think I would, I think that would actually I think that would actually be hard for my faith. I, just the way I'm wired. I think I'd get filled with cynicism Whoa. and anger and bitterness. Am I, I don't know. I think I, it'd be I, harmful I know what I'm, to your soul too. What's that? You know, that, I think it'd be harmful to your soul to be that hmm. disingenuous and to be that inauthentic to where you're at. Like, uh, I mean, Gnosticism is alive <laughs> and well in, in the church and it's in worship. It's just mm. splitting things between the spiritual and the actual or our, our practical daily lives, you know. Um, so Gnosticism was a serious problem in the early church, um, <laughs> and it's an unaddressed one. It's kind of like, you know, carbon dioxide in the air. Like mm. if we don't – if no one's ever ringing the alarm bell, like, hello, people are really struggling here. Um, I'm just afraid we're all going to fall fall asleep. And you know, maybe we'll come out of that slumber eventually, but are our kids going to? Like, will our kids put up with that? Because our kids, dude, their BS filter is oh like, my gosh. <laughs> finally tuned, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they would never have gone for a lot of the stuff that baby boomers went for. They're just yeah. like, ah, it's so cheesy or it's too whatever. And so they have a built-in criticality that can become cynicism, obviously. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to like say this is so great, but I am saying even the prophets throughout the Bible brought a critical consciousness to things like, um, and Jesus being the chief among them, like, no, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you that this is the actual issue. Um, you've always heard this, this is the actual issue. And when it comes to like what's happening in contemporary worship, I think we just need a little bit more thoughtfulness. We don't need cynicism, um, which I have to guard against, but we do need critical thoughtfulness to go, is this helping less Gnosticism? Like, where if my life is falling apart or I feel serious hatred toward um, a Russian dictator and I come in to worship and don't acknowledge that I hate my enemies, hmm. then how is God ever going to heal my hatred of my enemies if I won't admit that I have them? Hmm. We don't think we have enemies. Well, sure we do. If the Supreme Court puts out a ruling that has 50% of the people celebrating and throwing parades and 50% of the people throwing laments, this is a great time for me as a worship pastor to put into practice, am I going to love my enemies or not? You know, when social media, everyone's hating everyone else, like, well, do we love our enemies or do we not? Because you don't, you don't think that's a big deal until you have hatred in your heart towards people. You know, I I want a concrete example from you. You've been a worship leader for 20 years and, and, and I know now you're in a different space and I want to come back to that too. But, um, Okay, the Roe v. Wade reversal decision thing. Yeah, you brought it up sure. a couple times. How do you practically, if 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 you're that decision, say was on a, I don't, I don't know what it was, Friday, Thursday, Friday, your leading worship that Sunday, I think it was. What would you be doing? I was preaching. What's that? I was preaching. Oh, you were. 
Yeah. Well, let's start yeah, yeah. with what actually and, happened. What did that Sunday look like for you? And then if you were going to lead worship instead of preaching, what would that look like in light of severe cataclysmic shifts in culture? Yeah. Well, I'd also mention like that's not the only decision that they've made recently. Right. Um, there, you know, there's climate stuff that they're doing. There's gun stuff that they're doing. Yeah. There's abortion. Like it's there's a lot happening very fast. Right. And since I'm not the senior pastor of the church, so I'm I help lead worship twice a month at my church at New Life Downtown. Mm-hmm. So since I'm not the senior pastor and God has not put me in that position, as soon as all that stuff started going down, I reached out to the pastors and said. I'm preaching this Sunday. What do you want me to do? You know, this is your flock, not mine. But I'm on deck to communicate to them what angle do you want me to take? And so we try to um, not be, you know, um, just savvy, but to be uh, pastoral and to shepherd well what I felt like they needed to hear. But that was the main thing that I wanted to to communicate was because at our church, we would have people on both sides of any of these issues. Um, it's not monolithic. Even abortion um, in Colorado Springs, like that 70, yeah, 30 at sure. least, or is, I mean. I mean, maybe I, I dude, again, I, I'm not the senior pastor, so maybe it's, I don't know. I don't want to misrepresent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I know that it's, we're not first Baptist Dallas okay. or we're not Robert Jeffries. <laughs> um, so we're going to have a lot more like thoughtful people coming in who would recognize um, headlines and you know talking points, sound bites are not a good thing to basically build your opinions on. You need to do there's usually more than one side to a story. And so the main thing that I just wanted to communicate was um, this whole: Do we love our enemies or don't we? Because it's easy to say that, but we don't even really say that anymore. We just don't think we have enemies. But when something like this happens, it pr- anytime you feel ire rising up in you and you are provoked or you are offended, this is a great time to recognize, well, first of all, where's the emotional reactivity coming from, right? Mm. And then what are you going to do about it? Is there vitriol? Is there, Are you just going to shoot fire at fire? Mm. Or are we going to actually like represent the cruciform nature of Jesus here, carry our cross, wash the feet of those who are disgusting to us, are we going to meet people where they are or are we going to just do what the rest of our culture is doing? Mm-hmm. And so even if I was only leading the songs that week, I might swap a couple songs out. I might, I don't know. Um, but I would absolutely interject at some point. And I'd probably mention how in the Bible, it's not an option to say that you love God and not love people. Like first John makes that really clear. How do you say you love a God you can't see if you don't even love the people that you can not an option. So many warnings in scripture about splitting your love for God from your reality, your, your real experience. And again, that's that's what I think is often happening in contemporary worship. And it's something that uh, it's easy to happen when most of the leaders, songwriters, pioneers, um, that's their whole world. Like if you've ever seen something like in orbit around the earth, like it's just in constant free fall, right? And it's got to make perfect like corrections all the time to stay in constant free fall. And it just keeps orbiting around the earth because of that speed and the gravitational pull and all that stuff. So I was in that worship orbit for 25 years. Um, that's what I thought about. It's what I did, writing songs, um, going to conferences, teaching school, pastor, pastoring my team. I was just in that worship orbit. And like we talked about before we hit record, um, I'm now, I've fallen a little bit out of that orbit, not out of love with Jesus, not out of my, um, convictions about worship. I'm just a little more down to earth now hmm. in my thinking about worship where I work in, I work kind of a normal job now and I get to help at my church on the worship team. So I work in a, I, I mean, I work as a mortgage office, a loan officer <laughs> in a bank, and I still really value that my church in Colorado we worship God well. And so just because of the seat that I'm sitting in now, I see things a little differently. I, I sit actually in a literal seat out in the congregation twice a month instead of up on stage in a piano seat. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm in a different seat. And so where you sit determines what you see. And so I'm just thinking a lot about 
what we're singing, and how is this hitting people who aren't also in this Mm -hmm. worship free fall, uh, this worship orbit where they're just in constant thrall with the majesty of God, but they're actually like trying to figure out what happened, what are they going to do now that they lost half of their investment portfolio? Or Mm. what are they going to do with their kids, like like I said, who are post-critical now? And the simple answers don't work for. So I'm I'm sitting here in this new place, thinking about the same things, I guess in new ways. And just really, the main thing I'm always trying to think through is how do we help people worship in their lives, not just in this moment. This yeah. moment is great, but it's just a moment. And and scriptures are replete with with stories and examples where great moments did not produce life-changing fruit. It did. It didn't, mm. you know, um, Psalm 106 is like in one verse, it says, it talks about how the people sang his praise and they forgot his works. Like in the same sentence, it says that, you know, like we can sing ourselves right into a, um, a frenzy that doesn't necessarily transform us or create lasting fruit. And so because most worship leaders have not been trained, they're just going with culture. And what culture is doing is just like worship is getting simpler and simpler, you know, so anyone can play it. uh, Pretty much anyone can write it. You don't really need to study very much. Just find a line that you like and sing that for four minutes, you know. And so what used to be Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley and Fanny Crosby writing these deep, profound lyrics um, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's a long way off from, Jesus, I want to nibble on your ear. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that is a long way. And so what? where songwriting that was studious and studied, and, and these guys were brilliant People, these are brilliant men and women, like radical, faithful hmm. for the long haul. Wesley's, Wesley's wrote seventy five hundred songs. <laughs> That's three songs. Seriously, seventy five hundred. Seventy five hundred. They were evangelizing a continent that was illiterate, and so they were taking all the theology, putting it into music, so that people could remember the gospel if they they couldn't read it, and so the the songs that were written and lasted for so long came from deep wells. And what's interesting now is what's really popular in worship, I mean, it's winning Grammys. Uh, the songs are so simple. They're like musical tweets. Like, I, so I have felt that. I, I don't know song. I don't. It's weird. Being a nonfiction writer and songwriter, I feel like are two very different worlds. Like I, I don't understand. Like when people say, oh, I got together with my buddy and we, we were writing songs. I'm like, I don't even know what that looks like. I can't write with somebody else in the room or even in the house. Like I have to get, you know, like, um, and I know it's just a different kind of, but like, I'm, I, I'm going to be totally vulnerable and just let the chips fall where they may. I, I, I do. I have a hard time with a lot of worship songs. And sometimes I, because we're, I believe in the corporate body and corporate stuff and you do things, whether you like to or not, I'll just sing because that's what the community is doing at this moment. But there's a lot of times I feel like I'm just forcing my, the words I'm just, forcing it out of my mouth or or I just don't sing. I just, and, and then I feel bad. I feel guilty. Like what? I just hate Jesus or whatever. Like I don't, um, but there's certain songs that I'm like, or moments, not just songs, but like tangible events during the worship service that I'm like, Oh, I, this, for some reason, I just don't need to try. It just comes out of me. Those are rare. Why is that? Am I a pagan? Am I going to lose my faith soon? Like I don't, <laughs> And I don't want to be this old, like, hymns only, and like, we all, we're both about the same no, exactly. age. It's like, are we turning into the kind of grumpy right. old man on the back that we need to bring back the hymns, you know? And like, but yeah, a lot of the, most of the songs, the popular songs, I just don't really resonate. I don't know. I'm just like, I don't, can you pastor me through this? <laughs> Rebuke me, whatever. Trouble. We need to pray. Everybody, we need to pray for Preston <laughs> to fall back into his teenage puppy love. Jesus. <laughs> I wrote a blog a while back. I wrote a blog a while back called Jesus is my boyfriend. I got so much flack for that. But I said um, it, it, it was sparked because my wife was singing and I kind of like was listening and I'm like, are you singing about me or Jesus? And it was kind of a joke because I was like, everything she's saying, she said to me on our date last night, you know, and like, I'm like, you, 
this is good material. Like I can just really capture this word for word and like just map it all on either my wife, like how I feel about my wife or how I feel about Jesus. And I just got a creepy picture of this girl, like hugging Jesus kind of a little bit like erotic, not erotically. Well, no, emotionally. Yeah, no, there's plenty that is. I mean, it's, I mean, these days it's like who can find the most clever way to express how much we love Jesus. And there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's not inaccurate. It is inadequate, though, for what our congregations need over time. Because, hmm. again, I think we just have to we have to measure what we're singing, not just one song at a time, but like a season at a time, six months at a time. Like, look back at what we've been singing and hold it up to the standard that the Bible has given us, which is the book of Psalms, hmm. and say, all right, in the Psalms, there's lots of different themes that are highlighted. Um, there's great. There's the goodness of God. There's the glory of God. There's the loving kindness, the mercy, but there's also like wipe, eviscerate my enemies, you know, like, where are you God? There's, there's as much of that as there is of the other. And so I I see it like, if you've ever seen an EQ spectrum where it's like LEDs, like here's all the low end, you see like five different LEDs and here's the mid range, upper mid, and then highs. Like in the Bible, there's all these different themes that are going up and down, and they're all heightened here or like diminished there and things like that. And so I think we need to just hold up our repertoire in our culture, really, to that standard and go, what's missing? Because I think we've emphasized two or three of those you know, EQ spectra, spectrums, spectra? Uh, sounds like a James <laughs> Bond movie. We, we've done a few of them. But there's a lot of stuff that's missing. Mm-hmm. And I think the stuff that is missing is what's going to kill us. It's what's going to take out the next generation. Because mm-hmm. if there's there's room in the Psalms for doubt. There's room in the Psalms for despair. There's room in the Psalms for anger. You know, you said something about the, like, our, our you reference our kids a few times. And I just I just want to, like, affirm that, 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 at least with my kids, and I think... I'm, you know, it's anecdotal, but as I talk to teenagers and Gen Z and young 20 something and college students, there there is this high BS meter and the, the kind of just like forced feel good kind of version of Christianity. It just doesn't, I don't know if this is new or if this is always true of people who are late teens, early twenties, but like, I know with my kids, like we've, we've had to Again, this is going to sound bad. There's been search like certain like church and Christian environments where I've had to remove my kids because it was pushing them away from Jesus because it lacked kind of the 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 kind of meaningfulness. Um, It was just very kind of like. I don't know if you've seen the the comedian, the Christian comedian Michael Jr. about you know being oversaved. Oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) There's there's like a lot. That's become a household word. Like oh, that environment is a little little too oversaved, you know, and that just, it just pushes them away. Or even if they hear things that are too ironed out too feel good, like it actually says, Ooh, I don't know if I want that. Is, is that Christianity? Cause I don't know if I want that. Like, no, no, no. Like that's a form of it, you know, but no, that's not the essence of who Jesus is. And so it, it's, 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 I don't know what to do with that either. Like so it's, it's been not the, you know, God is dead atheist philosopher professor who's like pushing him away from the faith it's been certain versions of christianity that has been the a, a, a huge challenge for the faith at least with my my some of my kids not all my kids but some of my kids you know and the questions they're asking are like you know my um one of my daughters we we get together for chips and salsa every couple of weeks because she has lists of questions it's just and we go through the whole wow. list and then within two weeks she comes back to another and i would say at least two-thirds of those questions are more complex than any other question I've gotten from adults my generation and older, um, questions I've never even heard of, never even thought about. And I'm like, I thought I kind of had heard most of the hard questions, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. So I just, I'm concerned about that, you know? And and I I do want meaningful, meaningful worship environments. What are the key ingredients for that? Um, What do you teach when you you are discipling future worship leaders? Like, what are some of the main non-negotiables where it's like, you want to be a meaningful worship leader. Here's Mm -hmm. a few things that we must build into you. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of different shapes and tools that we use to kind of hopefully give people handles to hang on to this stuff, both in 
10K Fam, which is our that's the worship school, the fully accredited thing, and in Mere Worship. So that's our subscription based community where hmm. leaders from around the world can just hop in. There's lots of, I mean, over a hundred videos of content, me teaching like paradigms, practices of effective worship leadership, stuff like this. So this is what we talk about in both of those communities. For a worship leader, we'll talk about a worship leader and then the worship song. So worship leader, I think they need to be aware of three things at all times, their own personal journey, um, their local context, and the historical tradition that they're, they're leading at that time. So immature leaders are only aware of their personal journey. Impersonal leaders are only aware of their local context. You know, and then institutional leaders are only aware of their historical tradition. So I'll actually show all this on a Venn diagram, you know, and, mm-hmm. and usually you don't have someone who's just one of those. Usually you have someone who's just two of those. <laughs> okay. And so anyway, we build this whole thing out. But I talk about like the ideal leader knows their personal journey. They know where they've been. They know what they value. They know what they're, where they're gifted, what they're called to do and what they're not. They, they can articulate all that and the stuff that's really important to them, they, they can – they can articulate that for you. They also know the local context that they're in. So a lot of what we've talked about so far today has been about local context because it's like this is what's going on in people's lives. This is what's going on in the news. Um, this is what's going on with their kids. So that's like where people are really at today, not where they should be or where we wish they would be or where they would be if they were in the worship orbit and free fall, free, free fall and thrall with Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. This is where they're at. This is the context. Uh, and then the historical tradition is something that's that's never really changing. I mean, it's nuanced from one church to another, maybe one stream to the next. But we want to be connected to that. I, I think we really need to stay connected to the ancient rootedness of our faith. Mm-hmm. I think we need stuff that's that's wiser than has been tweeted. You know, like we need <laughs> stuff that has been around for thousand plus years. And so what often happens is worship leaders only connect to a couple of those. So they, the congregation becomes anemic because it's not fully, it's not like a healthy balanced meal. It's only, here's my, my favorite stuff about God. You know, that's the worship. So the worship leader, that's kind of the lens I want them to see through is all three of those things. um, Recognizing they're, they're not conflated. They are not to overlap. There's going to be stuff in my personal journey that's I'm really passionate about when it comes to the worship of God that doesn't fit my local context. They're mm-hmm. not totally conflated. That's okay. The church should not be where I have to like <laughs> get all of my creative fulfillment, you know? Yeah. Like I should not subject the church to my need for validation and approval <laughs> for all of my musical ideas or whatever. So there, there's going to be stuff outside of that. that so just having a healthy... Um, give and take on all of that, I think is really important. And then the, the way that that plays into musicality and like songs, you could swap out the language in those circles. But basically at the top would be, I think that song, a great song, a helpful song is going to be all three of these things. It's going to be artistically beautiful. So I'd, I'd put that in with a, a personal journey. You need to have developed your competency to be able to make something beautiful. Um, it needs to be theologically insightful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's the third one? Oh, it needs to be congregationally accessible. Okay. So it's really hard to find a song that's all three of those things. So, and we could double click on any of those, right? So artistically beautiful. What does that mean? Isn't that subjective? Well, yeah, there's some subjectivity, but um, there are reasons that these great composers, we're still listening to Bach. You know, mm. there, there are reasons why we're still listening to stuff. And there's reasons why we make fun of other songs. And now they're, you know, Nickelback or Michael Bolton or whatever, whatever else. <laughs> like there, there are, <laughs> sorry, I actually like one. <laughs> Nickelback is such low hanging. I always, I, I, again, I don't even know. I just like music that helps me to lift more weights to the gym, you know? So I, <laughs> So I keep hearing that Nickelback like, is not really right. musically like gifted or I don't know. Okay. So artistically beautiful. If we double click on that here, here's the criteria that I think like worship has, if they're going to write a song or if they're going to choose a song and sing a song, is it both of these things? Okay. And this, this will help with beauty. Take the lyrics away from the music. Listen to the music. Is that beautiful? Hmm. Like just the melody. Is that beautiful? Um, if it is great, you're halfway there. Uh, our lyrically, take the music away. Just read that. Hmm. 
is that beautiful? Or is that kind of childish? You know, sometimes like if you, if you can, music can be deceptive. So I, I could sing something and you could actually really feel that. But, but if I just said it, you'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Or that's kind of dumb, you know, <laughs> or, yeah, or yeah. that's, um, it doesn't hold water. And so if like, if a lyric, if you could read a lyric and it move you mm. and you could just listen to the music and that move you by like independently of one another, and then you put those together, that's something. Okay. And that rarely, so that's, ha- I feel like for me, that rarely happens. And I feel, I don't, and I don't, I don't, over- people are like, well, you're, Mr. PhD, you probably just analyze, overanalyze. I actually don't. I give so much. I almost have learned to just take my theological hat off when I go to church. That sounds bad, but I just, yeah, because no. I, I don't, I don't yeah. overanalyze stuff, nitpick at all. Um, right. But I would, I also am conscious, you know, and I, you know, and when the lyrics, they half the time they're so about one's in, individual subject, subjective experience. Right. And I don't want to lie to myself, you know, I yeah. lo- Lord, I love you with all my, whatever you make my heart just flip over my chest. I'm like, well, that's not true of me. So do I still say it because I'm supposed to right. half the time? I'm like, no, I'm not going to say something. I don't believe in, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so here, you give me, um, all hail King Jesus, hands down my favorite worship song right now. Yeah. Do you know, is that, is that, cause I feel like that combines powerful lyrics what is it? I don't know enough about music to know if it's beautiful, it, it, but the but the the way it elevates and does seem to be more creative than the average song, and it has a power behind an energy yeah. behind the music that correlates with the energy behind the lyrics. Yeah, I don't know. Am I is that is that a good That's song? A great, and I think it's a very <laughs> strong song. Jeremy Riddle is amazing. So the guy that wrote that song, oh okay, he's he's real special. Um, really? He has been for a very long time. Yeah, um, but. Uh, you know, we talked about the subjectivity, objectivity last time. Um, I remember. I don't yeah. want to get back into that. But I, what I would like to do is on the other side of that. So we talked lyrically last time. Let's think even musically. Why are you okay. maybe not moved? Okay. And it, even if you're like I, you're – let's say you're not really that into music. Like you don't even care. There are a lot of people in our churches who don't – music's not a big part of their life. Well, I, so, um, so I, love, I love music. I don't understand yeah. music. I don't understand it. Great. So like – And that's great. So – a lot of worship leaders, their spouses aren't that into music. A, a lot of them that I – and again, I coach hundreds mm-hmm. of worship leaders. So this isn't me just projecting. Yeah. Like my wife actually loves music. A lot of worship leaders' spouses love it. But I'm telling you, I coach a lot of worship leaders whose spouses could kind of give or take the whole musical part of the service. Huh. And I've just been trying to figure out like what is going on there. And I think that even for someone who um, works in construction, you know, they just want to have um, some beers at the end of the day. They don't care about art, about fashion, about – they don't care. <laughs> like they don't want to go see concerts. They don't care. Even that person lives in a society where there's television, there's movies, and guess what's in every commercial? Like there is music that's driving everything. And the music is very intentional. The music is obviously very powerful and it's visceral. And if you've ever tried to watch a movie with the sound turned off and just read the captions, it's not as powerful. Like the Sound is really emotive, right? Um, and so it's really interesting because we've been conditioned, um, even if I don't like classical music and I don't listen to highbrow stuff, I'm a, I'm a member of this society. And they're playing when – I, when I see a Rolex commercial, they're playing Rachmaninoff or whatever. And so my, my hmm. antenna are conditioned to a certain level of quality that I expect. I'm just used to it being at a certain level. Okay. And so again, even for non-musical people, their their antenna are up. They're constantly they're watching movies, they're watching shows. They are hmm. they're hearing music that is intentionally chosen to get a certain effect. And that's just called prosody. When when music um, is connected to meaning and message, that's the artistic term for that is just prosody. So they're hmm. used to that. Okay, so even someone who doesn't know anything about music, doesn't really even care, even for them, they're like that. So then they come into church, and they come to church, and now they're not listening to music that has necessarily been like written by people who study composition and know what happens emotively if you move from a, a first interval to a sixth 
that has an emotive effect. Hmm. Or if you really hang out on the fifth interval, that has a very definitive effect. If you're hitting a seven, that's a very like anxious effect. Composers know this. Classical composers know this. Um, people who've studied songwriting know this. I mean, John Mayer studied songwriting at Berkeley. Pat Patterson, who is his teacher, he has taught legends. There are things that the people who are great at this know that people who are aspiring to be great at this need to know. Okay. So it's all this stuff <laughs> that I don't understand. Like- it's all this stuff that I don't understand. So you're saying I may still like, huh, wow, this song is doing something. This this rhythm is doing something to me. This other song isn't. And you're saying that's not just subjective. Like there are actual things going on. Thoughtfulness that has gone into the creation of this rhythm, this melody that didn't yep. go into this one. And most people might not even know why this one just is more energizing or more emotive or more moving for lack of better terms than this other song. Like why are there so many like U2 songs that are still, still playing on the radio and it's like, this is still a really good song. You know, I don't know if that's a yeah. good example or not. Maybe that's well, yeah. And it's, so I think anytime we ask a question like that, we have to se- separate, let's se- separate lyrics from mm-hmm. melody. And then mm-hmm. honestly, with a band like you too, you also need to kind of separate sound. So there's huh. a few different things all working together. Um, in, in the case of a lot of those U2 songs, they're all working together in perfect prosody. So huh. it's all just delivered so well. To, to illustrate this, think about like a classical piece of music or just an instrumental piece of music that you've heard that made you cry. Hmm. There's nothing lyrically. There's nothing left brain. There's nothing like consciously, hmm. but there's something deeper than that in you that's responding to that music. Hmm. Okay, so just the tones, the sounds, the instruments, the notes, the intervals, the rhythm, all that stuff, it affects you deep, deeply, deeper than you understand. And the fact that a song without words can make you cry should make you question. There's something deep. There's something deeper to you than your brain. Um, it's soul. It's heart. It's whatever you want to call it, right? And, and, and so, in language is that universal human language, right? Like you even said, people that don't say they like music, they're still music they still does. do. Like yeah. they still it's it's just so embedded in in creation. Like it's so much yes. deeper than just a, one form of art that some people like, some people don't. Like it's it's much more theologically sophisticated than that. Yes, and it's it's ancient. I mean, even in the Bible. I mean, Genesis, is it Genesis 4? Yeah. Where music starts, mm-hmm. right? With that guy. And so Genesis 4, there's music. Genesis 5, civilization starts. So it is like ancient, it's primitive. There's something deeply human in us that connects with musicality. There's not a culture that's ever been found in the world that didn't have mm-hmm. some expression of music. Okay, now let's get back to the next generation because. What affects you, there's some universality to that, but then there's going to be particularity to, well, what culture did you grow up in? What time was that in history, right? And so this is why people are writing modern versions of hymns, because maybe those melodies aren't Mm. stirring anymore like they would have been 200 years ago, but lyrics still are. So let's put new lyrics, or sorry, new melody to it. But here's my big my big, huge question that I'm thinking about with worship these days, and it has to do with the next generation. When you and I were growing up, uh, there was no such thing as a worship leader. I mean, maybe that was just beginning to start. That role is only 60 years old. Um, there was probably a music minister who there was a piano player, maybe an organ, maybe a choir, maybe an, maybe an orchestra. Um, but they basically just sang the songs, right? And a lot of those songs sounded nothing like the music that I listened to throughout the week. (laughs) Like, I mean, there was a huge gap between the music at church Mm -hmm. and what I actually listened to when I was 15. Here's my big question. Have we not just created the exact same disparity between the music we're singing and the music that our kids are listening to? And I know it's anecdotal, but I have gone and I've asked tons of teenagers, what kind of music do you like? I mean, I have, I have multiple teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask them, I, I, I don't have to ask them. I know I take them to concerts and I love the music. It's not how it's not this. It's not what it sounded like when I was growing up. It sounds different. I ask teenagers all the time, what kind of music do you like? They, they tell me the bands, they tell me the artists. And then I say, and what kind of worship music do you like? And the bands that they name 
sound nothing like mm-hmm. the rest of the music that they named. Yeah. So my big question is like, have we not, I, I would say contemporary worship is as uncontemporary to the next generation as hymns were to you and I, when we grew up. So that, uh, why is that? Like with, with the genre, if you're going to classify contemporary worship music, would the genre be something like soft rock or something, which nobody listens to anymore? Or what would it, what would, what would, what would, it was, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Right? Like anthemic, kind of anthemic. Anthemic. Rock. Yeah. And like, that's like not, that. yeah. so why is, why is almost all contemporary Christian music one genre? Like, why is that? It's monolithic. Yeah. Because, um, white men have ruled it since the beginning. So it is, I mean, worship is way too male and way too pale. And this is the big problem. Why worship is monolithic. Um, the church of Christ is not monolithic. The global body of Jesus is not monolithic or monocultural. I mean, there are going to be more colors and styles and sounds in heaven than we could even imagine. But worship did not buy into discipleship, and it definitely did not buy into a priesthood of believers. It bought into colonization and empire, pyramids and dominance. And so you can go to Ghana, or you can go to uh, Canada, (laughs) or you can go to a remote—you can go to the Maldives and probably find a church singing Chris Tomlin songs. Now, that's not bad. Good for Chris. I love Chris. Um, The question is, do we ever sing their songs? And the answer is no, of course we don't, because we don't believe in the priesthood of believers and the dignity of all people. Revelation does, but we don't. We haven't, we haven't gone into countries curious to see what have they discovered of God that they've put into art that could enrich us. And that's a shame. That's a huge loss because hymns did. Um, none of those, hardly any of those big hymns that you like were made in the USA. All right. How Great Thou Art, number two hymn of all time, Swedish song. It's called O Stor Gud, 200 plus years ago. And then it got discovered, it was translated into Russian, got translated into German, finally made it into English. Now it's the number two song behind Amazing Grace, beloved hymns of all time. I grew up singing How Great Thou Art, like at my church probably once a week. You know, like I can't <laughs> imagine what, what my upbringing and worship would have been like if I had never heard that song. So here's the question is like, what other songs are we not hearing hmm. because we're not paying attention to what God's doing in their midst? We're only exporting. We never import. Um, that's a big problem. And when it comes to, sorry to keep going, I'm, I can land this. Um, yeah. But when it comes to our kids, the reason I said we're, worship doesn't give a rip about the next generation. And that's because worship doesn't really give a rip about discipleship. Discipleship is all about raising up the next generation and making sure that your ceiling is their floor. You're, you're giving them a baton. You're not dropping it Mm -hmm. in the Bible. When that happens, serious breakthrough takes over. You know, when there's an Elijah with an Elisha, a Moses with a Joshua, uh, a Jesus with those disciples, like things move more quickly, but most of biblical history is not, um, going up into the right because discipleship was happening. So well, most of it is one generation dropping the baton for the next. When you when you talked about just right now, most of the songs created by white men. I why we said that. I got this fleeting thought in my head. I feel like a year ago you made the same comment, and I think somebody on social media, which I rarely pay attention to, but I think somebody pushed back on that. I'm trying to. Yeah, it could have been something else, but I think it was that. I think they said something like, "No, there's actually a good number of hot top Christian contemporary songs created by." non-white men. Um, and even though that Waymaker song, isn't that written by an... Yeah, we talked about that. Okay. But is that... We talked about that. But guess, I mean, guess what happened? Like, it took a white man to make it accessible for America. You know? We we can't do... We're not there yet. I mean, shout to the Lord, right? Darlene Check. I mean, that was, that was a breakthrough song. I would love... Don't just look at right now. Look at the last 50 years. Okay. Look at the top... 100 songs in the last few years and count. See if it's a pretty fair representation okay. <laughs> of 
the body of Christ around the world. Is there a place and where you I, can access Like, Are those numbers pretty, like there's just a factual yeah. list of like, here's the most. Yeah, you can find this. I'm yeah. sure. I mean, CCLI does that. Obviously, maybe I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, but I, I, I do believe like the reason that I'm curious what's going to happen with our kids is because what, what you two did with rock music um, 20 years ago, it really affected, or 25 years ago, really affected some of those uh, British young guys in their 20s. They were like, we want to be like that for the church. And so Delirious starts. Mm. Oh, so yeah. that goes all around the world. And then Coldplay came on the scene, another British thing. And then worship kind of sounded like that for a long time. Kind of A lot of it still does. But a lot of these bands that like originated these sounds have moved on. Now they're they're doing different sounding things, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and you know my kids would still like to listen to Coldplay. Actually, they would love to go to a show, but they also listen to Kendrick, yeah. they listen to Chance, and they listen to um, these bands that I actually like. My favorite music I've discovered in the last five years has been what my kids have introduced me to. Yeah, and like, what is this so different, yeah. you know? And so the reason I say it's all connected to discipleship is because. I think it's gonna. It's not gonna take a forty-three-year-old white middle-class guy who works at a bank to write the next song that's really gonna affect eighteen-year-old. Like that's. It's not real. It's not authentic. Mm-hmm. So I'm not gonna be the one that does that. Um, but what I could do is pour into some eighteen-year-olds and give them the competency. Let them understand composition. What happens emotionally and viscerally with these notes, with these rhythms, at this speed. What happens. Um, cognitively, when the lyric says this against that, um, what happens with porosity and all this stuff? And so I, I, mm-hmm. I think like if we could actually raise up a generation who had all that technical musical skill, but also had theological, biblical, pastoral, you know, sensibility. And again, that's this is going to take some time, but mm-hmm. this is why worship school takes eighteen months. Um, it's still not enough time. If we could raise those people up and give them the dignity to recognize your generation has a sound. Yeah. And my generation probably shouldn't even like it. Like (laughs) the problem is 21 year olds are writing songs that 65 year olds like. That's a problem actually. (laughs) That means we're not evolving. I also think it, 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 it's, I feel like it reinforces this, the sacred secular divide. Like, I, and I can even imagine my kids who are really thoughtful with music and and have, you know, a high BS meter with church stuff. Um, I think even them, like if I played a song that was more a hip hop song or a reggae song, and it, yeah. let's just take the worship lyrics of any contemporary worship song and just map and just put it to a reggae tune. I would assume that uh, maybe not my kids, maybe my kids, I don't know. Um, I say, hey, let, here's a newest, here's a worship song, you know, I'm like, oh, well, well, it's not worship though. Like they, they would define worship as like, you know, yeah. Anthemic soft rock, you know, music, which, uh-huh. you know, may or may not be good. But if you put a different genre on something with profound worship lyrics, I think they would be like, Oh, but that's not, that was, that, it, well, c- c- we couldn't play on a church. Could we like th- this whole like weird division between like, there's been a genre of music that's been baptized in the church. And I think that has unhealthy ramifications outside of that. Think, I mean, Reggae. Why don't we have more reggae? Why don't we any reggae worship? Everybody likes reggae. Do you know anybody that doesn't like reggae? Go go to Hawaii, sit on a beach, and get a you know a, a cocktail and watch the sunset and they're playing reggae. And nobody's yeah. like, oh, let's turn. We need some more you know soft rock. No, nobody <laughs> says that. It's super easy to sing to. It's super. No, uh, no woman, no cry. I could start singing Bob Marley uh, right now, and everybody on the podcast can sing along. Like. Why yeah, don't we oba, have that? Oba so. Huh? Yeah. Oba, oba so, man. Oh, uh, dude. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Like, you know, in Psalm 8, when David, those little superscriptions at the top of some of the Psalms, I think are, can be really instructive for us. But that one says, to be played on the giddeth. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, why <laughs> is that in the Bible? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I think it's key because that was an instrument that was from Philistines. Huh. That was not a Jewish instrument. David invented a lot of instruments, blah, 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 blah. That's not one. Really? He discovered it. It was an extern- It was like a pagan sound. And he was like, this song, that, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name? You know, yeah, you've set yeah. us a little lower than all the eight psalmates. It's great. He says, play this one on the Giddeth. The Giddeth. 
Yeah. Is it in your translation? Do you see it? Yeah. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. And, and those, yeah. and those uh, introductory notes I learned in my Hebrew class in seminary, the, these are part of our oldest manuscripts. So our, yeah. my Hebrew teacher said, this is part of the inspired word of God. These aren't added. As far as we go back in manuscripts, these are there. So they're, they're there. Yeah. yeah. So I just love that. I, I love that David like had his own sounds, but he also, I mean, when he's spending time and remember, he's like running away from Saul, he's foaming at the mouth. It's like weird stuff going on in his life when he's picking up this instrument and he learns it. And he's like, that sound, we need that sound. Sing it with that sound. Hmm. So I think that just more than that, but especially that blow the doors open to, we ought to be engaging with all cultures and and not appropriating them, you know, right. like, I'm not sure. I think like the next generation will be sensitive to cultural appropriation and things like that. But I can tell you, um, I wrote a, a reggae song with a couple friends, Micah Massey and D Wilson. Uh, both of those guys have won Grammys in the last few years, um, for song of the year. Uh, I'm the only one, I'm the only one of my friends that hasn't won a Grammy. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I, I know a few others that haven't. Um, but this song is called Grace Came Running. Okay. It's a reggae song. And we probably wrote this four or five years ago. And I don't do much worship leading for kids anymore, for students and youth, you know, but when I do, that's the song that everyone sings all week and they freak out if we don't play it. Huh. Uh, it's, all the way reggae. And D brought this idea. I mean, it was his idea. He started with it. And then we just shaped it and made this whole thing. It's one of my favorite songs I've ever written. It's got theology and it's got, it's got reggae. Yeah. So man, I mean, the, the overarching theme is like what God's doing in the world is beautiful. What people are going through in the world is really difficult mm -hmm. and sometimes brutal. And I think we need all kinds of songs all kinds of sounds, all kinds of prayers, just like you find in the Bible. And I'm afraid we're going to lose the next generation because the, the gap just keeps getting broader between where they're at and what they're what they have to, you know, portend to be on Sunday mornings. Mm. I think we've got to we've got to give space. And even if the songs don't exist yet for it, the worship pastors should have the sensibility mm. and the acumen to be able to interject it. You know, and so even if you do whatever new version of God is so good you want to do at the end of that song, can you just encourage people to go, God is good. He has been good. But where are you at? You know, mm -hmm. are you there? Mm -hmm. Can you recall when God was good? Because you could probably think pretty easily about where he hasn't or where it seems like he hasn't. I just I, I've buried too many of my friends to think mm -hmm. every time I pray God's going to heal and I, I'm still battling with God on so many people who I love who are in debilitating mm -hmm. um, situations. And it, I'm honestly pissed. Sorry, mm -hmm. I don't know if I should say that on this. Like <laughs> when I think about that, when I think about uh, missiles going into shopping malls, I am pissed. Mm -hmm. I'm like, God, you said you were going to do this and you say you do this. Where is it? Mm -hmm. And kind of at this point in my life, at this season in my soul, the only psalms I can really feel are those imprecatory dark ones where it's oh, like, yeah. I think it's Psalm 55 is like, make my enemies melt like snails. Hmm. That's an interesting line. You probably <laughs> never prayed on Sunday. You know, it's like, um, but all that break the bow, like shatter the arm. That's all disarming stuff. That's like, that's good prayer for us today for make the tank treads fall off, make the, Hmm. Uh, guns misfire, like whatever, you know, this is the only stuff I can really feel right now. It's where I'm at. Yeah. That's yeah, where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, very, gotta that's, that's very, we got to give people permission to where they are. It's very Psalms, right? I mean, like you said before, there's so much, uh, complexity in the Psalms and some of them like Psalm 88, uh, never resolves itself. Ooh. It's, it's nothing but yeah, yeah. darkness. And that is where David, David, I think was at, at that moment. Um, and other ones have a blend of God, you're faithful, but you know, um, where are you here? It seems like you're not here. You know, it seems like you've gone back on your promises and, and that complex, complex mm -hmm. dance. Um, uh, where can people find you, your worship school? Um, would love to, yeah. if anybody's interested in like, Oh my gosh, I would love to send some people to get the training you're talking about. Where can they, where can they find that? 
Yeah. Thank you, Preston. Uh, okay. So mereworship.com, like mere Christianity, but mere worship or 10kfam.com. So 10kfams, 10,000 fathers and mothers, that's our worship school. So lots of different options. People can um, sign up for class. We've got new classes in the fall and the spring. They can jump into a cohort instantly with mere worship. It's like less than 10 bucks a month, you know? Right. Um, so lots of different options. And then if they want to really um, revolutionize their financial futures, they can go to AIO.loan and learn about the best mortgage that exists. <laughs> we didn't even talk about your banking, your new banking career, but maybe we'll have to yeah. bring you back on to talk about this new, uh, we were talking <laughs> offline just so everybody knows for probably longer yeah. than we should have, but you were blowing my mind with this new way of doing home loans. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So yeah, can you say that one more yeah. time just in case somebody is intrigued uh, about a home loan that would it. save them it's, hundreds of thousands of dollars from what I hear or possibly at least? Yeah, it's basically a mortgage that will save you a third of whatever you owe on your house. So if you owe 300 grand on your house, you'll probably save 100,000. Wow. Um, and you don't have to make more money or spend less. So it's called the all-in-one. It's awesome. I built a website, AIO.loan. <laughs> and I can't believe I'm plugging that on your Go, podcast. No. I love your podcast. This but it's, it, it's it's not just your new gig. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a both. It's like, yeah, you're thriving in it, but you help other people genuinely save a lot of money, which is great for the kingdom. So yeah. it is helping. Bro, thank you. I so appreciate you. I love <laughs> you talking too. with you. We could talk for hours. <laughs> Bless you, man. All right. Take care, man. Appreciate it. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.